Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Looks like the next two weeks are going to be all about Kevin Durant. According to our friends at Bet Online, the Phoenix Suns are the favorites to land Durant, followed by the Miami Heat, obviously the two teams he's requested a trade to. But after that, we have the Dallas Mavericks, Los Angeles Clippers, Portland Trailblazers, and even the Philadelphia 76ers as long shot chances to land him. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you make your initial deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is July 1st, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate just stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. We have got a whole lot coming at you on today's show because we have news all over the place in the sports universe and of course we're going to begin with the Brooklyn Nets so let's just go ahead and hit our poorly produced intro music for any time we're going to discuss the Brooklyn Nets over the next two weeks. Kyrie Irving is so disgruntled with the Brooklyn Nets that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant is not good as far as this weekend as far as training camp we will see there's been one message consistently coming out of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and and that's I don't want to be here so we didn't hear from Kevin Durant for about a week Kyrie Irving made us all look like fools back on Tuesday because I had to record a segment Monday afternoon, then delete that segment, then record another segment, and then I had to mention in the show notes that Kyrie Irving opted into his contract, so a couple of the points that I made were incredibly, incredibly dumb, and I made the mistake of doing a, a, a podcast segment that could age poorly. I always say that I try and do podcasts now that are evergreen, or ones that will at least last like a week. I try to avoid doing the daily wrap-up of news But it just felt like the hot anti-vax summer, as I'm calling the summer of 2022, was gearing up for Kyrie to leave and that Kevin Durant would request a trade and that maybe they would get a trade package for Kyrie and then Durant would choose to ride it one more year with Brooklyn before requesting a trade. And we didn't hear anything from Durant, but Kyrie opted in, so it looked like they were going to play next year together. And then Brian Windhorst was saying, my sources aren't confirming that this is a done said deal Kyrie said see you in the fall it's not see you in the fall it's now we're working our way out of Brooklyn Kevin Durant told Joe Sy on Thursday morning before free agency that he was requesting a trade and Brooklyn was going to work together with them to 
find a trade partner for Kevin Durant. And this is something that while people were like, this is going to get resolved before free agency begins, this wasn't going to be like the Tyreek Hill deal where like, we didn't hear anything about this. And then the news was they're seeking a trade. And an hour later, Tyreek Hill's traded to the Dolphins. It it wasn't going to be like that. It was. It, this is going to take a couple of weeks for timelines the Kyrie Irving trade the first time from Cleveland to Boston got done i want to say at the in either august or the very end of july but i we can uh let's see it was well, it doesn't say, oh, August 22nd, 2017. Now, he requested it later. So it was in the middle of August when that trade happened. And the Kawhi Leonard trade from the Spurs to the Raptors happened on July 18th. This is probably going to take 9, 10, 11 days if I had to guess. Now, I already recorded one podcast that has aged incredibly poorly. I'm not going to do that again with this one. So let's talk about the macro with the Brooklyn Nets because what we know at this point is it's over. Brooklyn is over as presently constructed. What they're going to get back in return, we'll see with time. Uh, It could be Phoenix. It could be Miami, which are the two teams Kevin Durant wants to go to. But in this scenario, I know I always say, like, if you want to go to that team, you can leverage a move to that team. Anthony Davis did it with the Lakers. James Harden did it with Brooklyn. Like you can leverage the impending free agency and the threat of not reporting against teams that are trying to trade for you. I don't think Kevin Durant has that level of leverage and Kevin Durant's a generational star. So it's weird that we're talking about that within the context is that Kevin Durant has four years left on his contract. And as the weeks go along, the trade packages or trade options are going to expand from Phoenix and Miami. And the reason that's the case is because other teams can other teams who are really good can offer better packages than what Phoenix and Miami can offer. Now, I know I I know I did the fake trade with Kyrie before and that fake trade is back on, baby. Kyrie and Jonathan Isaac to the Lakers send Terrence Ross and uh, T A. What was it? I think it was Westbrook. T H T. A first round pick in three seconds to Orlando. Brooklyn's gonna walk away with uh, Terrence Ross, I guess, and a first round pick. And woo, Kyrie, LeBron, Anthony Davis, big three in Los Angeles. Or go even further with Kyrie and Kevin Durant end up in Los Angeles with LeBron James. Woo, we are riding out the last generation of basketball. All to, riding out into the sunset with LeBron, KD, and Kyrie, all one giant flame to finish their career. But like, in the absence of that being back on the table, and Kyrie's going to end up with the Lakers, nobody else wants Kyrie Irving at the price tag we're talking about Kyrie Irving at. The Lakers want their get-out-of-jail-free card of getting Kyrie, dumping draft picks, pairing Kyrie, LeBron, and AD, or Kyrie, LeBron, and KD in the dream scenario for them of flipping Kevin Durant for Anthony Davis, which pretty good trade we said for a while like Anthony Davis you you don't sell low on Anthony Davis right now switching AD for Kevin Durant that'd be a pretty nice win now I don't know if KD or Anthony Davis would be down for it but what are the odds that Anthony Davis nukes that trade between the Lakers and Brooklyn Brooklyn kind of just takes their risk on that one I'm pretty sure but like barring the dream scenario of that Kevin Durant is probably going to have to expand his trade packages in or trade candidates in order to make this one happen because the best offers you can find from any team at this point are Memphis, Golden State, maybe if you want to argue Philadelphia, maybe if you want to argue the uh, Dallas, no, not the Dallas Mavericks, the uh, the Denver Nuggets. But these are all places that Kevin Durant probably isn't going to play for. And Kevin Durant, I assume if he expands his trade options a few more, like if he goes beyond Phoenix and Miami as his two options, you probably get to Golden State. You maybe get to Boston. I, maybe Kevin Durant, now Kevin Durant probably doesn't want to go to Boston, but Boston can offer a better trade package than than Phoenix and Miami. So the point stands that because there are better offers on the table and 
Brooklyn doesn't technically have to oblige by Kevin Durant's request, but at the same time, Kevin Durant can use the threat of not reporting, etc. But with four years on the contract, it does make it more difficult for Brooklyn to move Kevin Durant elsewhere. So Kevin Durant, as the weeks go on, will expand his trade packages to a few more teams. And if those teams, I don't know what the teams will be, if those teams can have offers that beat Phoenix and beat Miami, then that's probably where Kevin Durant is going to end up going. Because Kevin Durant doesn't have the leverage that we talked about with Kawhi Leonard or James Harden or Anthony Davis in these previous like biggest trades in NBA history is that Kevin Durant is under contract for four seasons, and those four seasons will take him to his age 38 season. So someone's going to sign up for it the same way the Lakers signed up for LeBron James. The trade packages that people will have to give up will be exorbitant, and people will want to do it. What's fascinating about it is that because there's no no-trade clause, Brooklyn has more leverage than they might in a situation of a superstar like Kevin Durant requesting a trade. And all of that is going to be a struggle for power and a struggle for control like the entire Brooklyn Nets saga has been between Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant finding his way out of there is going to make for incredibly, incredibly captivating storylines over the next two weeks. But Kevin Durant in this situation doesn't have that same level of leverage that a star of his caliber might just because of the four-year contract and the no-trade clause relative to what other... Because if you have fewer years on your contract, it means you're closer to free agency, which means your value goes down in the market, which makes it easier for a Phoenix or a Miami to go and acquire you. So now the price tag is really high for Kevin Durant. And maybe the price tag has gone down because they know Brooklyn has to trade him. So maybe the price tag goes higher in that respect. But Brooklyn is going to get a top 15 player back out of this trade as long because they can get that from Miami and Phoenix. They can get Bam Adebayo or Jimmy Butler. They can get DeAndre Ayton, probably not Devin Booker, but they can get DeAndre Ayton, who's like precipice of possibly being an all-star, plus Michael Bridges, plus Cam Johnson, plus 18 draft picks if they want to go that route of like replenishing the, the farm system or the draft system because they won't have... Uh, any draft picks after you know all their draft picks go to Houston and all that stuff down the line so like maybe they go for replenishing the asset cupboard instead of getting the bona fide star now and trying to compete I don't know exactly where Brooklyn goes with that it's it's taking the power back within the organization but I don't even know I think once the cat's out of the bag now this is ultimately going to lead to a total restructuring of the Brooklyn Nets organization. Steve Nash won't be long for his job. Sean Marks might get to keep his job just because Brooklyn is not going to be able to find better than Sean Marks. But it wouldn't be surprising if he also goes out the door. And then you have an and whoever the stars they acquire might not be long for playing in Brooklyn. And it's hard to speculate because I have no idea who they're going to end up with. And maybe after that, it'll be easier to say where does Brooklyn stand now? What's the game plan from there? We'll, we'll reevaluate that once we know who they have. But like the organizational structure of Brooklyn is probably going to be reset. Part of it is a results-oriented business. Like this is going to go down as a catastrophic failure by the Brooklyn Nets over the last three years that they didn't produce any results, any meaningful results. Like they were one foot away from winning. They were always a great team. Or in, or in 2021, they were the second best team in the NBA. So, like, that's a meaningful result. But they were expecting to be one of the two best teams in the NBA every single year. And I think part of why there's going to be just a, a reshaping of the organization is just because now people can walk all over you. If you get a player not even the caliber of Kyrie Irving walk in the door, that person can walk all over you because they've seen how this organization is run. They've seen how the power dynamics work in these situations. And if you get back a Bam Adebayo or an Anthony Davis or a DeAndre Ayton, those players get more power with your organization the way that small market max players get power over organizations in those uh, you know, when X player sign when Gordon Hayward signs with the Charlotte Hornets, although I, it's not exactly the same case. When X player signs with the Knicks, like Jalen Brunson or the Bulls, like DeRozan, all of a sudden they add a certain level of power 
because of how valuable they are to the small market. It's the same reason why De'Aaron Fox is making like $180 million for the, the Sacramento Kings on his contract, or why Bradley Beal, by the time his 15-year Wizards career is over, and they're going to retire his jersey. Like, I'm not saying Bradley Beal's not a great player. Bradley Beal's also going to walk away with half a billion dollars from the Washington Wizards because he's not worth that to any other team, but he's worth that to the Washington Wizards. A guy who's a number three on a really good team is worth it to Washington who hasn't had shit for 40 years. And so that's whoever the whoever comes back to Brooklyn is going to be in that place. And I think the way that you reframe that is by just changing your uh, front office structure and you change how the organization is run and you try and build up whatever semblance of a culture you used to have when it was D'Angelo Russell and trading, you know, finding value in assets and basically turning nothing after the Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce trade. You had nothing available. You lost Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum with your draft picks. Boston took them with your draft picks. Uh, They basically replenished the asset cupboard enough to get James Harden. They were able to get Jared Allen. They were able to get Torian Prince. They were able to get Dazana Musa. They were able to get Karis Levert by taking on bad contracts and, uh, you know, getting players. I think Torian Prince was acquired for a couple draft picks as a salary dump so they could get Kyrie and Kevin Durant. And those players got flipped with all of their available future picks for uh, James Harden. And that's the genius of Sean Marks was he was able to turn nothing into James Harden. And the Brooklyn Nets now walk away with they did they, all they got from that is now Seth Curry, Ben Simmons, a couple first round picks. We'll see what they end up doing with it. But again, organizational structure is probably going to get reset for Brooklyn. And that's really interesting because, yes, this is going to go down as a failure. But how you pivot from here is really important and, and um, pun intended pivotal, but it's really important to see how they pivot in this situation because what I'm fascinated by is every two years you have a moment where you are at a crossroad and this will decide the next four years of the Brooklyn Nets organization. What happens with these two trades, whatever they get for Kyrie Irving and only the Lakers want him so they'll be selling low on Kyrie no matter what and whatever they get for Kevin Durant, And maybe they package them together to get more in return. But whatever they get in such a trade is going to reflect whatever the next four years of Brooklyn is going to be. For better or for worse, a generation of Brooklyn basketball, you know, the the generation before they had the one second round exit with the Russian oligarch. Russian oligarch sells the team to Joe Tsai for uh, Alibaba. you know big time international mark uh retailer like amazon and he's worth 40 billion dollars and you know it's a side project to own the brooklyn nets and then they go to the tank for five years but they get pieces like d'angelo russell in return then they spend a generation giving up their organization's power to kyrie irving and kevin durant and James Harden for a time, and three years later, they're now making a decision that will determine what the next four years is going to look like. And that's incredibly fascinating because no one has a story like the Brooklyn Nets do. No organ I mean, they're really poorly run, but no team has an organizational story like what the Brooklyn Nets have had over the last like close to 15 years. The last three, four generations of NBA basketball have been such a wild ride for the Brooklyn Nets. And now we get to watch it all unfold and put an end to it right in front of our eyes. And whatever they walk out with is just going to be a mishmash of pieces that they'll probably trade again. I'm sure, you know, there's the scenario where Ben Simmons and Bam Adebayo can't be on the same team. But like, if you walk away from this with two all-star caliber players, whether it's Anthony Davis or Bam Adebayo or DeAndre Ayton or whoever you put on the on the Brooklyn Nets at the end of this, which we'll know in a couple weeks and it'll be easier to evaluate. Like, whatever you have left will just be a mishmash of get what you can get and take years to rebound from whatever this experiment was or succeeded in or failed in or whatever else you want to point to with the Brooklyn Nets. So they're deciding the next four years of their franchise, the same way we talked about in the NFL with Kyler Murray, how the the Cardinals' decision to re-sign or not re-sign Kyler Murray or make this uh, a headache or whatever else you want to call it, all of that is deciding the next four years of the Arizona Cardinals' franchise. 
it's all being predisposed and predetermined by this one decision to sign Kyler Murray to a contract. Because it's now, are you going all in for Kyler Murray? Are you building around 22% of your salary cap going to Kyler Murray, et cetera, et cetera. Next three years are predisposed by all those extensions that you signed because that's your organizational direction. Brooklyn now is like, the next four years will be decided by this trade. Do we get all-stars? Do we get draft picks? What do we do from with these two best trade chips that have been available in the NBA in the last three years. What do we do with them? What a mishmash of picks and players and all-stars and young guys and veterans do we get in return? And how can we build out a team from there? It's going to be really interesting to see what they do. And I have no faith that Brooklyn is going to get it right. Kyrie Irving is so disgruntled with the Brooklyn Nets that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And, um, you know, we'll we'll continue to work at it. The situation between... The Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant is not good as far as this weekend, as far as training camp. We will see. There's been one message consistently coming out of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And and that's, I don't want to be here. All right, real quick, let's just roundtable NBA free agency stuff real quick. And I know you know the big moves like Jalen Brunson and Bradley Beal getting $250 million and uh, who else was the big? Oh, Jokic got $264 million, all that stuff that's part of hot anti-vax summer or hot Spider-Man summer because the Miami Heat also threw in a trade package for Donovan Mitchell. So, like, imagine a scenario where Donovan Mitchell ends up with the Brooklyn Nets. We could do all that stuff. Or I could throw together the ultimate trade package of Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons going to the Miami Heat in exchange for Bam Adebayo, Tyler Hero, Max Struess, Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, three first-round picks, and two pick swaps. All of that could be had by whoever ends up making such a trade with the Brooklyn Nets. We'll see what happens. You can kind of just take pits and pieces of three all-stars and take them to another team as we dismantle the Brooklyn Nets and put together a mishmash of Terrence Rosses and Bam Adebayos and DeAndre Aytons somewhere around the Brooklyn Nets. Also, now it makes a shit ton of sense why three days ago the Vegas odds listed DeAndre Ayton's second most likely landing spot as the Brooklyn Nets. I thought it would be a Kyrie trade. I thought it might be a Ben Simmons trade. Nope, it is Kevin Durant wanting to play for the Phoenix Suns, and that's why all of a sudden Vegas knew DeAndre Ayton was shooting up the ranks of most likely team to land on. How about Brooklyn? As Stephen A. Smith reports that KD to the Suns is virtually done. And it's going to take a longer time because everyone now knows that it's the case. But now Brooklyn can take their sweet time and let other teams try and get into the negotiation game along with the Phoenix Suns. Funny ones, Anthony Simons got $100 million. It's just generally shocking to me that Anthony Simons just replaced the CJ McCollum contract. Obviously, I didn't watch any Portland basketball last year, so I'm sure Anthony Simons, Anthony Simons, sorry, Anthony Simons, I'm sure played really, really good. But he's also one of those original, not G League Ignite guys, but just skipped college guys and went straight to the NBA draft. And he ended up falling a little bit in his draft status, but Altogether, he ends up averaging 17 points a game and took a, I mean, not most improved player step, but like as good as Devontae Graham did a few years ago. And I'm sure Portland will not enjoy $25 million a year for Anthony Simons, even though he's now their starting small forward. But paying $25 million to lock down 20 points per game is not necessarily the best move in the world, but Portland didn't have a lot of options, like we said. Um, so then you're looking at Lou Dort. Lou Dort was the next one I was surprised by. Lou Dort got a hundred and or sorry, Lou Dort got eighty-five million dollars. 
from the uh, from the Oklahoma City Thunder. He averaged 17 points a game. He got 17 million dollars. And you know, OKC, it's fine. Like players wanting to play in OKC. He's a homegrown guy. Whatever. You know, OKC's got tons of cap space. They're going to be tanking next season. It's not really that big of a deal that Lou Dort gets 17 million a year because. Altogether, if they want to make a trade, it can just be a cap filler. Like it's it's not a contract that actually has bad value for them. I just find it funny that Lou Dort, who burst on the scene in the bubble in 2020, ended up getting 85 million dollars after I did not watch a single Oklahoma City basketball game over the last two years. He apparently developed from a scrappy defender coming off the bench to a guy worth 85 million dollars. The last time I heard of him was in the bubble. Speaking of players who I last time I heard of them was in the bubble, Daniel House. You may remember that uh, when we were with Morgan, we made an all NBA team of we made an all NBA players who were left in the bubble team. Uh, Brett Brown was coaching the team and we had the fish that Ben Simmons threw that couldn't hit water and Daniel House if you remember correctly he got thrown out of the bubble for inviting one of the staff who was working in the bubble to his hotel room which broke covid protocol and got him thrown out of the bubble released by the Houston Rockets two teams later Daryl Morey moved to the 76ers and now they're all together getting the band back together again with the Philadelphia Rockets. What if we just bring back everyone from the 2018 Rockets but then make our team just a little bit worse with Joel Embiid there to carry our carcasses to a championship that we feel like we should have won in 2018. There's even talks of Eric Gordon finding his way over there. Eric Gordon's been sent to the purgatory of Houston for the last two seasons along with John Wall. But there's a chance that Eric Gordon ends up finding his way to the 76ers. Because it started off with Maury. Maury traded for Harden, which we now know was a bit of an overpay, giving up Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, and two firsts. And Drummond. Let's not forget Drummond. But giving up all that for his boy James Harden. Then they signed Daniel House. Then they signed P.J. Tucker for $10 million. James Harden opted out of his contract with the Philadelphia 76ers just so that they could sign P.J. Tucker and Daniel House. How funny. I mean, it's not exactly why. Like, James Harden's going to make $130 or $140 million on an extension with the Sixers. But he, he opted out. Instead of $47 million, he's probably only going to make like $35 million and slide in the $10 million for P.J. Tucker and slide in the $3 million for Daniel House. And James Harden's opt-out gets the whole band back together in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Rockets, 2023. The band is back together, baby. <laughs> You know what else happened today? It was time for the annual tradition of who are the Lakers going to fill their roster with around their star-heavy team? Because every year, the Lakers have like nine players on the team who play, and only three of them are decided when free agency rolls around. One year, you always got to have the young guy, so they, they got a draft pick this year. They took, what is his name, Max Christie. So Max Christie's going to be their Austin Reeves or their Caruso. 
got to or the Taylor Horton Tucker, you got to have the one young guy. So they fixed that one already. Then you got to have the scrappy point guard, which they're still figuring that one out right now. You got to have the shooter. You got to have the defensive guy who everyone's like, oh, that's a sneaky good signing. You got to sign one big man that everyone forgot about. It's And then you got to sign Carmelo Anthony or Trevor Ariza. It's the formula every single year for the Lakers is they always fill out their entire bench on the first day of free agency with only mi- uh, the mid-level exception and minimum contracts to hand out. And the Lakers lowest and behold did it last year they gave it out to Kendrick Nunn this year they chose Lonnie Walker Lonnie Walker gets the mid-level exception they would have liked to have brought back Malik Monk but not when the Sacramento Kings can give him 10 million dollars a year to come off the bench and score eight points for the Sacramento Kings finishing 12th in the Western Conference so this year they went out and they got Juan Toscano Anderson, too, the scrappy defensive player. But instead of Malik Monk, they get Lonnie Walker. They'll figure out a point guard at some point. Might be Kyrie Irving in actuality. But they need a backup point guard. They'll probably go sign Quinn Cook. They got scrappy defensive player. One year it was Kent Bazemore. And this year it's Juan Toscano Anderson. And everyone's going to say, oh, it's a sneaky good signing. A sneaky good signing by the Los Angeles Lakers. So they get Juan T., from the Golden State Warriors. They got Damian Jones, champion center of the Golden State Warriors, also to come on a two-year contract using only part of their mid-level exception money. The Lakers filled out their entire bench during the second day of free agency. So now they can enter the season with their three stars, Talon Horton Tucker, Lonnie Walker starting at the two, and then coming off the bench, Juan Toscano Anderson, Damian Jones, and eventually Carmelo Anthony on the sad, sad Lakers of LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and possibly coming soon, Kyrie Irving. So very happy to know that the Lakers followed the exact same formula every year, and Rob Polinka just had like $10 million to sign five players, and lo and behold, he did it. Will they play? Probably. Is that going to be a problem? Probably. That's what the Lakers do. Uh, no Kevon Looney signing yet. That is a little bit surprising. No DeAndre Ayton offer sheet because uh, some teams are now in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes that might have been on the DeAndre Ayton trade, a train a little bit before all this went down. So we'll see what happens there. And yeah, that's your NBA free agency breakdown. Day one, 2022. Let's talk about Los Angeles, baby. I know we just talked about how the Lakers are assembling a core of Lonnie Walker and Max Christie and Taylor Horton Tucker and Juan Toscano Anderson and probably Dwight Howard. I know Dwight Howard hasn't signed there yet, but Dwight Howard's probably going to end up there. I saw Andre Drummond went to the uh, the Chicago Bulls, so the and JaVale McGee went to JaVale McGee went to Dallas and JaVale McGee or sorry and DeAndre Jordan went to Denver and I was like damn the rotating cast of just centers to stick in the middle of the floor is going away for the Lakers the only thing that would make it more perfect I guess less than the meme team is like Juancho Hernan Gomez who is whatever he's the the main guy in that movie Hustle that came out with Adam Sandler so it'd be funny if they end up with uh Juancho Hernan Gomez on the minimum contract also but I'm like they're running out of centers Lakers are running out of centers. You know, Dwight Howard is their last option again. Drummond's gone. DeAndre Jordan's gone. Blake Griffin might end up with the Lakers once he gets bought out by Brooklyn. He doesn't play defense, but at least he's a big. But anyways, that was uh, some some Los Angeles basketball jokes. What I want to talk about is Los Angeles football because breaking news that got totally overshadowed by the Kevin Durant trade request. USC and UCLA are going to the Big Ten. And that news overshadowed the other news earlier in the day, which was 
row the boat pj fleck who if you go back to some old podcasts we were very pro row the boat and they were our adoptive college football team who we loved and cherished in 2019 every year we have one of those teams that we love and adopt and cherish as a a group of five school but minnesota was basically our group of five equivalent and like they had no business making it to the college football playoff yet there they were Minnesota was our team in 2019, and it was Coastal Carolina in 2020, and I guess it was Coastal Carolina maybe again in 2021, but the point still stands. P.J. Fleck, kind of an abusive of power as a college football coach and deterred players from reporting infractions to the university, and uh, a former player who transferred who said like it was the worst decision of his life to go play for P.J. Fleck at Minnesota was saying that you know, PJ Fleck, anytime they wanted to complain, the university was going to side with him. And it's a, that's a real problem at Minnesota is the power that coaches have. And fortunately in the transfer portal era and NIL era, you have a little bit less of coaches having that. You have less coaches being the absolute authoritarian power. It still exists in college football though. And it, it made me feel sad that PJ Fleck was one of those coaches too. A lot of them I'm sure have that dictatorial authoritarian control freak gene type, especially because you don't have to want to be a leader to coach anymore because it's such a financially lucrative thing that anyone wants to follow the CEO model of rising through the organization to eventually get one of those jobs. I mean, not anyone can do it, but like you can just follow the pattern and keep getting promoted without actually being a good leader because there's just so much money involved. And it's like a corporation at some points, especially at the the top, top levels of college football, even if Minnesota isn't necessarily the top level of college football, it's, it's a byproduct of a lot of these programs. I'm sure we laugh at Eli Drinkwitz and I'm sure Eli Drinkwitz is probably an ass. I don't know anything about him. I'm just saying the odds are pretty high that white Southern guy, very much into Christ, who's a control freak college football coach, probably holds a lot of power over his players and wields that power with a little bit of uh, strength and a little without care of consequences because there's a lack of accountability for people in those positions of power. And it's a real problem with the power dynamics of labor and management in college football, especially because the labor isn't getting paid by the universities and the schools that employ them. So that was the story before USC and UCLA hijacked it. And that's more of a macro level conversation around college football. One is purely economics and finance of the sport and one is a cultural point and sometimes cultural conversations and social conversations around this stuff is uncomfortable because it dives into emotions more than like concrete dollars and concrete transactions which you know America has a fascination by it as we're going to talk about with Morgan from Australia sometime next week when that podcast comes out about the pure capitalistic instincts of of american pro sports and college football is not a pro sport but it operates like a corporation and doesn't pay its labor as one of the five most popular sports in college in all of america um you find yourself with if there's a chance to make money you will make money and if you can also exploit labor while doing it it creates imbalances of power and pj fleck was the latest coach to get called out on his bullshit similar to what happened with kirk ferentz and mike gundy and the thing is, these coaches have a lot of power. I mean, P.J. Fleck and Kirk Ferentz and Mike Gundy are all the, the highest public salaried employees in their states. In the state of Minnesota, the state of Iowa, and the state of Oklahoma, P.J. Fleck, Kirk Ferentz, and Mike Gundy are all the most highest, the highest paid public employees, I would assume, because it's the case at pretty much all of these public universities. And so it's really messed up that this is the case. Actually, I'm not sure if Iowa is a public institution, but I know the other ones are. It's messed up that the power imbalances there still exist. And this is why I I did the episode literally on this day last year, on July 1st, 2021, when the name, image, and likeness laws officially changed in some states, which forced the NCAA to have to adopt universal name, image, and likeness laws. And you've seen $9 million offers it for nil deals with boosters directly paying players instead of giving the money to the university and the university indirectly paying players you're seeing boosters go directly to players and all of that is really really good 
because you're getting athletes compensation and it's changing the power balance of who is employing the players because the players are actually instead of being free labor they're now being paid by the boosters of the school and it's not perfect it's much better than what the alternative used to be so you're seeing athletes at the highest levels getting compensated in the millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the top ends of the college football echelon so that's a bonus but last year i said the same thing don't let the ncaa off the hook do not let them off the hook in this conversation because just because you win the nil rights and all of a sudden there's going to be legislation not by the ncaa the ncaa as a corporation isn't really or as a governing body isn't ever going to get that level of power back that they once did but there's going to be some sort of governance around this and it's under the guise of for the good of the players but it'll ultimately take money out of their pockets under the guise of what's good for people but Sometimes legislation and jurisdiction can help in protecting certain exploitative processes, but then people who stand to make money from that overstep their bounds in creating legislation around what people can do because then they stand to make money off it as well. And so it's going to be constructed in the same flawed means that the capitalistic society of America has concocted in all sorts of corporations. Besides that point, what I wanted to say was the corporate... NCAA giving power or giving up some level of power as a governing body was good, but we can't let the NCAA off the hook because the next step is the member schools directly paying athletes for their labor. And potentially this leads to conflicts of interest that will ultimately lead to these college, these top end college football teams breaking off from their universities, paying to use their licensing fees, but ultimately operating like minor league football teams that ultimately might be 25 years from now, the next step, once we get to a place where athletes can get paid by the schools that stand to make money off of them and not just name, image, and likeness, like receiving salaries from the universities regardless all 50 to 90 players on rosters getting some form of paycheck at the bare minimum minimum wage hopefully in the $50 an hour $100 an hour or six figure type of deals because that's what the that's the type of money that these corporations stand to make from college football especially at the top ends of college football and how that's going to realign power at the top is by forming larger leagues and ultimately condensing the sport together so that everyone can negotiate a television contract together. Which, by the way, is what the the Power Five does now. The Power Five conferences negotiate the college football playoff deal. It goes to the ACC, the SEC, the uh, Big 12, the Pac-12, and the Big 10. That's where the dollar values for negotiating just the college football playoff games and the New Year's Six Bowl games go to and then the other group of five teams get the group of five conferences get one spot designated every year so they get one twelfth or whatever percentage of the revenue you get from negotiating that tv deal but mostly it goes to the power five member conferences and then they dish it out to the 70 member schools of the power five i think it's like 66 or 64 or something like that but all of them end up getting some share of the television revenue and they get some share of the college football playoff revenue and what's going to happen now is that 64 is going to condense to about 30 or 40 teams that are going to negotiate one big deal together which is why you are seeing the news story that superseded P.J. Fleck being an asshole who abuses his powers at the University of Minnesota, USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten. 30 minutes after the P.J. Fleck story broke, you had that story come through with USC and UCLA join, putting an official end to regional college football. college football. So for people who don't know, college football used to be only regional broadcasts is that if you lived in Michigan or you lived in Ohio, you could only watch Big Ten football. And if you lived in Florida, you could only watch SEC football unless you were in Miami, at which point you got to watch the University of Miami game. But pretty much everywhere else was just national television contracts and regional broadcasts. 
A lot of people never saw Barry Sanders play football during his 1988 Heisman Trophy season because you only got to watch that in Oklahoma and Texas and the occasional nationally televised game, which Oklahoma State didn't have any of those because they were Oklahoma State. And so now you can watch any college football game anytime. If you have ESPN+, Plus. You can pay $9.99 or whatever it is, $12.99 for Hulu, ESPN Plus, and Disney Plus. You can pay $12.99 a month and you get any college football game in the world. Or you can uh, pay for Fox Sports Live and you can get any college football game. If you basically pay for like three channels, you can watch any college football game in the world. And or in the country, I guess, but I guess some of them are in the world, but in the United States. So regional college football is over and it took 40 years, but eventually regional college football broke off. And now you have USC in the most southern part, the most southwest part of the United States in the same conference as Rutgers. Rutgers, who is in New Jersey, New Jersey to Southern California are now in the same conference and this officially completes the long-awaited end of regionalization in college football. Now there's an argument to be made whether it's better or worse. I saw Bomani Jones make the point like regional college football was part of what made college football such a success back in the 80s and 90s and I didn't live through that. I don't know if that's true or not. I Again, it's a conversation to be had about whether it's better for college football or worse for college football in terms of an entertainment product. What's not indisputable is the pure economics of this, which is by forming super conferences with top powers, you are going to get larger television contracts when you negotiate with Fox or with ESPN or however you negotiate the college football playoff by creating mega conferences those TV deals will get higher and that means more revenue will go into each of the member schools now does that mean Vanderbilt's also going to get 50 million dollars with which they can just punt on football and put it towards basketball and football and whatever sorry basketball and baseball and whatever else Vanderbilt is really good at yeah for sure, but the SEC gets the benefit of the the academic boost. Will they kick Vanderbilt at some point? Probably not. They can just add more people and negotiate it together and beat up on some of those bad teams. Just like Nebraska's in the Big Ten now, they're not going to get booted out of the Big Ten. Northwestern's in, Rutgers is in. Those schools are going to stay through conference realignment and conference negotiation. Because what this is ultimately going to lead to is... The Arizona schools are going to pursue either an SEC deal or a Big Ten deal or a Big 12 deal next. The Arizona schools, now that USC and UCLA move out of the conference and you're looking at a Pac-12 that now stands with the Washingtons and the Cal, Stanford, Northern California, Oregon's who are probably on their way out the door, and Utah and Colorado, of which... No reason to not go to the Big 12 or the Big 10 if someone will take Utah and Colorado. Those schools are looking around like, where's our next move? And as the Pac-12 is about to become the Mountain West and basically dissolve as a as a conference in terms of like practical purposes of college football, they're going to just become equivalent of what the Mountain West is and they're going to get blocked out of the television contract negotiations when the SEC and the Big 12 and the ACC or sorry, the SEC, the Big Ten, and the ACC form three super conferences, and they all come together and negotiate a, a college football playoff contract, and all of a sudden the Big 12 and the Pac-12, the teams that are left over, Iowa State gets left kicking rocks, West Virginia gets left kicking rocks, Oklahoma State possibly gets left kicking rocks, although Oklahoma State might now jump to the Big Ten, and it's all going to be fascinating as everyone just tries to latch on to one of the big conferences and Oregon's next for sure whether it's the SEC or the Big 12 it's going to be a negotiating ploy to get Oregon and after that maybe Oklahoma State maybe Oregon brings Oregon State along with them as like a congratulations we're going to carry you forward on this one kind of like what USC and UCLA did is that maybe that they keep the Oregons together and keep Oregon State out of becoming like sixth place in the but they keep Oregon State from losing to San Diego State and Boise State every year in the Pac-12. So if that's where the television contracts are going to go and the Pac-12 is going to effectively dissolve as we know it 
and we're going to have super conferences in college sports. It's going to be really interesting to see how these people pick off the final remaining teams. Because basically what we have right now is assuming that the SEC, Big Ten, and ACC are in free agency for the remaining Big 12 and Pac-12 and maybe group of five teams that are left to join their conference. You have now 16 Big Ten teams, 16 uh, SEC teams, and 14 plus Notre Dame ACC teams. So you're basically standing right now at 45 teams. And maybe that's all they do. Maybe they're ready to negotiate television contracts at this point. There's more dollars to be had, especially with Oregon, who's one of the 25 uh, highest earning college football programs or just athletic programs in general, in part because of all the Phil Knight Nike money that they get. So according to USA Today data from 2020, which I feel like we've cited something similar to this in the past, the highest earning athletic programs in college football are now all in either the S about to join the SEC or are already in the SEC, ACC, or Big 12. Because you're looking at UCLA at 25, USC in the 20s. I, I don't see Oregon on here, which is a little bit surprising. I thought Oregon would have been up here a little bit, but you have Basically, if you're looking at the top 20 athletic revenue generating programs, number one, Texas, now in the SEC, Texas A&M SEC, Ohio State Big Ten, Michigan Big Ten, Georgia SEC, Penn State Big Ten, Alabama SEC, Oklahoma SEC, Florida SEC, LSU SEC, Wisconsin Big Ten. Then you get to Florida State, which Florida State will be really interesting. If Florida State jumps to... Florida State and Clemson are the two that probably join the SEC if they want to like bankrupt the SEC. If they want to bankrupt the ACC, they could take Florida State, Clemson, and to, uh, Miami and tell everyone else to pound sand. But as long as those programs are still there, the ACC will get included in the 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 group that's negotiating the college football playoff. It's not going to be two super conferences right now. It's going to be three super conferences because they can't pry. They've now picked apart the Big 12. They're about to pick apart the Pac-12. Next would be picking apart the ACC. And I don't know yet that that's going to be the case. There's been no reporting to the point yet. So Florida State, Clemson are the only programs left on this list that... Oh, and Louisville also. Louisville also would be in the mix there. So as long as you have those four who are in the top 30, the ACC still stands a chance. Now, if the Big 10 and SEC start throwing around big money and those four programs break apart, then you're looking at two super conferences. But right now what you're looking at is 16 and 16 in the Big Ten and SEC, and those numbers are going to grow regardless of whether they pick ACC teams or Pac-12 or Big 12 or whatever they do. It'll be, I mean, maybe the, maybe the ACC just folds, maybe ACC sees the writing on the wall and they fold into these two conferences, and you have two 24-team or 32-team super conferences that negotiate television contracts, but there's only so many big teams left that aren't in the SEC or the Big Ten. I mean, we just listed them pretty much left. It's Oregon, who's no chance they're staying in the Pac-12 now. Oregon is gone. It just depends on who negotiates a deal with them. Uh, Oregon, teams in the top 30 of athletic revenue-generating programs. It's Oregon, Clemson, Florida State, Louisville, Miami. Those are the ones that are left. And either those ones form a super conference and decide that they're going, you know, they're not going to be able to compete with the SEC or the Big Ten, but they decide to stay together and form basically a third a third region, basically, a, a third conference that is not quite on the level of the other ones, but will still put a team in the college football playoff every year, or they fold and decide to join the SEC or the Big Ten. And then you have two super conferences, which the reporting after the USC-UCLA move was, yeah, you're headed towards super conferences. That's That seems to be the point where you're headed to right now is two super conferences. They're going to negotiate giant television deals and all the money in college football is going to be concentrated in those two conferences. Everyone there is going to stand to earn more and big 12 pac 12 
even ACC, tough luck. You're going to be left on the outside looking in, and that's how the money is going to be uh, concentrated at the top of the sport, which is going to make it more professional, which as players' NIL deals become more expansive, it's really, really, like we talked about at the beginning, it's really, really important that those players negotiate receiving compensation from the schools set up unions and possibly as that happens once we create two 24 team super leagues or three super conferences with the ACC's a clear third place whatever we figure out over the next five years then you need to spend those five years getting the players the rights to then negotiate as a union with the member conferences and get a portion of college football playoff related revenue might take five years might take 10 years might take 15 years the will is there the resources are available that is the most important fight as usc and ucla form super conferences and soon oregon's going to join a super conference because or they're going to join the acc maybe the acc says in order to continue existing we have to win oregon (laughs) and we have to win arizona and we have to win arizona state in order to continue existing as a conference we have to win the remaining teams of the Pac-12. That's our it's our only chance of continuing to exist is by winning the Pac-12, winning the discards of the Pac-12. Or maybe they get Boise State and San Diego State. And then the Pac-12 is probably going to fight for those teams just to try and continue existing. Um it, it's or existing as not being on the same level as the MAC or the same level as the Conference USA or the same level as the AAC. In order to continue existing, those conferences are going to have to fight and pay lots of money to the schools that are left for the picking, which is Oregon, Clemson, Louisville, Arizona, Arizona State, Cal, Stanford, possibly Washington. Paying for those schools is going to get is go, giving deals of revenue sharing to those schools is going to increase college football related revenues for those programs. And it's really, really important that we spend the next five to ten years fighting to get those players compensated from the schools with that money and from the boosters of the school and get them negotiating a union. Now, possibly that leads to the professionalization of college sports. That's okay. It's better than the injustice that currently exists right now because this is already shamateurism and professional sports without the compensation. It's really important that the next five to 10 years are spent negotiating labor contracts for those players beyond name, image, and likeness, which is going to be used as a guise to distract people from the real injustice, which is free labor for those players and getting essentially, with as, as Drexel University reported in 2018 that I cite all the time, 16 cents on the dollar in the, in the equivalent form of scholarship and housing and food, etc., Based on the value that those players are providing to the schools, they should be receiving six-figure salaries and negotiated and negotiate that within the construct of getting money from the universities that's how valuable those players are each three-star recruit to one of those super conference schools is worth over four years close to a million dollars and their labor and the revenue that they drive for the school they are worth close to a million dollars even the players who are backups on these teams are worth six figures over four years and the scholarships that they're getting and the food and the housing from the schools is only the equivalent of about 16 to 20 cents on the dollar of what they could be earning based on their value and it'll never get to one dollar to one dollar but it's important to just keep moving the needle do not let the ncaa off the hook and now do not let these call these Public universities that are corporations, but oper- you know, public universities that receive money from from governments and make billions of dollars and have billion dollar large endowments, which makes them corporations. Do not let these corporations continue to exploit their labor, which is a case classically in America, but it's especially true within the construct of college football. Next five to ten years, we should be fighting for labor unions for the college football athletes and college basketball athletes and other revenue generating sports like college softball and like college baseball and women's college basketball tournament and 
any other sports that make money for the NCAA when they negotiate that mass 30 different um, sport television contract with ESPN. Get compensation to the athletes based on their labor. And that will be the important way to continue, especially with the, the massive revenue generating universities that are now switching conferences, getting ready to negotiate gigantic television contracts and stand to increase revenues in some cases by nearly a hundred percent. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you for your continued support here. Leave a download, leave a a five-star review. We have the Spurs documentary that we've made. It's out now, first episode. It's Wednesday's episode of this podcast. It has its own podcast feed. You can find that with the link in the description to this episode as well. I appreciate each and every one of you for your continued support and helping continue to fund these dreams. We just passed our third anniversary on the podcast. I started this after graduating high school. I've now just graduated college and we're continuing to support these dreams with a podcast every single day yelling about the injustices of labor for college football athletes. So thanks for stopping in, everybody. Take it easy. We'll talk to you again next week.